called More Grace for the Journey. And as we noted when we began this, uh, this book, you know, looking back to 1 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians in particular, it begins with grace. It's right here in the middle and it ends with grace as well. And this we find a very practical application of that too. So I'm going to read this text for us and then Eric will exposit it for us this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Feel free to follow along in your own Bible, or of course it's up here on the screen as well. And here's what we read. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God. Good morning. Is the mic is on? Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I am delighted to worship with all of you this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, I'm extending my special greeting to all of you. Hope you find this community to be warm and, and wel- welcoming. So I'm, I'm I'm excited to to be with you this morning. So as Mark mentioned, we had been going through the book of Second Corinthians and. This morning, we are in chapter 8, and I wanted to start this morning with, uh, with a study. So this is a study conducted uh, by the John Templeton Foundation. So the study was released in 2008, and John Templeton, if you're not familiar with the name, I wasn't quite familiar with the name uh, before reading this, but John Templeton, Sir John Templeton, uh, is a British banker, 
he was an investor, money manager. He was also one of the most generous philanthropists in the history of humankind. So in fact, Times Magazine recognized him as one of the top 100 most influential people. And the category that was given to him was a power giver. So he was a very, very kind man. So the foundation that he had, uh, you know, funds research on humanity, and not surprisingly, their most famous research was the science of generosity. Uh, so again, published in 2008, uh, explains about the roots of generosity. Very, very interesting research. You can Google it yourself. Uh, and, and, and it really talks about you know, how generosity you know, blossomed in our life and what impacts it has in our culture, in our relationship with people and others. Um, so here's one of the main conclusions uh, from the study. Uh, the study said that let me see if I can get this right. So this is one of the conclusions. People clearly have the capacity to be generous, but they don't always act on this capacity. People have the capacity to be generous, but they don't always act on this capacity. So when I first read this, my first question is, who are these people? <laughs> Like, where do they live? And then I realized it was, I'm, I'm one of those people. So, <laughs> so that is, that is, the, that is the, the study that had been conducted. Uh, so this morning, we are facing the, arguably the clearest explanation and encouragement for generosity in the entire Bible. So what we're reading today is Paul giving encouragement to the people in Corinth, and then there are two markers or two signs that Paul gives in our reading today when it comes to generosity. And for each marker, for each sign that Paul mentioned, he gives an example or he gives a model. So the two signs that Paul gives are joyful, and sacrificial. So joyful, sacrificial. Giving joyfully, he gives an example of the Macedonian churches, and giving sacrificially, the model that Paul uses is the Lord Jesus. So those are the two that my intent today is to unpack those two markers, joyful, sacrificial, the church in Macedonia, and the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to unpack those, and then we will close with application at the end. So let's start with the first one. So first one says that we want to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, there's, so this requires some context here. So the backstory behind was that Paul... At the time of his writing, he was raising funds, he was raising money to help Christians who live in Jerusalem. So there had been famine in Judea, and the people there were in need. So now, 
you may be confused. There's a lot of things being mentioned here. Macedonia, there's Jerusalem, there's Corinthians. The, the book was written to the people in Corinthians. So it's, it's quite, quite easy to get confused here in terms of where we are in the world here. So let me show you a map here. So this is the map of Paul's journey. So this is her third journey. So the Jerusalem that I mentioned is kind of in this bottom corner there. So there is a famine in Jerusalem. So Paul was on his way. So prior to this, Paul had been in Ephesus, which is kind of right, right in the middle of this map right here. So he was, uh, he was there, and then now he was in Macedonia. So he was observing the people in Macedonia. In Macedonia, there were three churches that he previously had planted. And then also in Macedonia, he received Titus. So Titus was kind of coming back you know, or, or coming on, on the way up from Corinth. So the people of Corinth is living in this area, so an area also called Achaia. It's also being, being mentioned in the next, uh, in the next uh, uh, chapter, chapter 9. But Corinth today is the, the modern day of Greece. Uh, so you may be familiar the, the, the city of Athens. That's, you know, one of the big cities in Greece today. So what Paul doing in this chapter he describing the response of the Macedonian Christians, so the people in, in the corner there, in the northern corner, the response of the churches in Macedonia to the news that the believers in the Jerusalem are in need. What we do know from these verses, verses 2 to 5, we also know, interestingly enough, that the Macedonians themselves were facing challenges. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, the challenges that the Macedonians were facing, but we knew from the history they were, you know, quite, quite, quite a number of things. Uh, so they faced famine themselves. Uh, there were natural disaster. There were flooding going on. And then there was also war. So the Macedonian churches were not exactly in the good shape uh, themselves. So you can see there's an ancient forms of recession going on here in Macedonia. So I wasn't able to get their inflation rate, but I could imagine their inflation rate was pretty high. Uh, so the Macedonian church was pretty, was pretty challenging, was pretty challenged with, uh, with their economical situation. But there were... A couple interesting points here in terms of how they responded to the challenge that had been given to them. So let's start with this, the most obvious one. The most obvious one is in verse 3, we were told that they gave beyond their means. According to their means, but then also it was said beyond their means. So not only they gave according to their means, but they also dug really deep in their pocket. So they were very generous in spite of their own challenges. And then in verse 5, we were told they gave themselves first to the Lord. So in giving, sometimes the real issue isn't about the money, isn't about the materials. It's about giving ourselves to the Lord. It's about trusting the Lord. 
and the Macedonian passed this test. And then, this is probably the most fascinating to me. In verse 2, we were told that they gave with abundance of joy. So not only they gave generously, but they were also very joyful about giving. So think about it, right? So usually when we run into challenges, when we run into difficult times, we become anxious, right? So think about your own experience. We become worrisome. We start complaining to everyone about our situation. So it's a very difficult for us in time of challenges to think about anything or anyone except ourselves. But here we see a different scenario here. We see that the Macedonian believers, they were quite different. In their time of challenges, they had overflowing joy in the middle of their trial. Notice that the word joy there, it was sandwiched between the test of affliction and extreme poverty. And then the, the word joy, abundance of joy, is right in between there. So, the, so motivated by joy, the churches in Macedonia, they responded. They responded in their generous giving. So it's worth to point out as well the idea of joy, right? So the idea of joy, so biblical joy, especially this is very you know, prominent in your New Testament, right? The idea of joy is, is, is typically used not only to signify the feeling of happiness, right? So the joy, joy, joy can mean happiness, uh, but also joy also signify the spiritual realities. So joy is a feeling of assurance, uh, a feeling of confidence independent of what happens. And that, that, is, you know, that is a common theme over and over again in New Testament. Now, now it begs the question, so how, how was this possible? Why, why were the Macedonian churches you know, overcome with joy in the midst of their trial? So were they simply delusional or they, they, they're kind of you know, untethered for a reality? I think the answer is pretty straightforward. The answer, we had to go back to first one. When Paul says that the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So the church in Macedonia, they receive and experience something special. Greater their own challenges, and that is the grace of God. You will notice here in this verse, verse 1, when Paul begins this chapter, he does not begin by referring to the generosity of the Macedonian church. But first, he refers to the generosity of God. See kind of the construction of the word here. The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So in other words... Behind the generosity of the Macedonians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, first and foremost, he saw the generosity of God. 
So grace is, of course, to receive something that we don't deserve. So the Macedonian churches, they receive the grace of forgiveness that they do not deserve. When they do that, they understood the messages of the gospel. And when they understood, when they fully grasped the message of the gospel, they respond in their giving. So I think that's a good test to ourselves, right? So we need to do our own self-evaluation. So do I truly understand if or when I do give, do I truly understand why I'm giving? Am I giving to make myself feel good or am I giving because the love the Bible tells me so? We're coming in into a tax season here. Am I giving because there's an incentive to do so? Because there's a tax write-off, you know, at the end of our giving. <laughs> or this is very common. Am I giving, am I giving so that God would give me something in return? So Paul argues here that there's only one true single biblical motive for giving. And it's not guilt or shame, so we dealt with those last week. Uh, but the true biblical giving, as Paul argues here, is motivated by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. When we understand that the grace of God given to us in the first place has overwhelmed ourselves, then we can give generously with overflowing joy. So Tim, the late Tim Keller, a pastor and, and a, an author, uh, so he, he has this quote, which, which I love because, because uh, partly because it's, is very action-packed. Uh, so he described the idea of giving as a chemical reaction. So this is his quote. So he said that when gospel-born, superabounding joy came into direct contact with poverty, an explosion of sacrifice giving well up into rich generosity. So poverty plus gospel joy produces riches. So here's our point today, our first point today. So we are called to be like the Macedonian churches. When you give, give with abounding joy because you are overflowed with grace. Give joyfully because you are overflowed with grace. And then we move on to verse 8 and 9. So here in these verses, Paul encourages the church to give sacrificially. And the model that Paul uses here is none other than the Lord Jesus. 
So again, invite you to think in your own experience, we usually give up out of what we can spare, right? So think about how you budget your money today. Uh, if you're like me, you know, we, we usually budget, you know, we set aside food, shelter, transportation, all kind of stuff first, and then, you know, what kind, you know the, the, the leftover that we had, then we would give it to, to charity, right, to the Lord. So back in 2008, 2009, when, you know, my wife and I just moved to Cincinnati, uh, we were in the financial strain uh, because of a lot of other things. You know, we just moved to a new city, got a new job. Uh, we, you know, we had, uh, we had a huge baggage at that time. Uh, we were moving from Michigan. We had a huge baggage that we couldn't get rid of, uh, namely house. We, you know, there was a time of recession. So there was a very, very challenging time in, uh, in, in our, you know, in our time, in our life. Uh, so at that time, uh, you know, I was usually the one that doing budgeting in our household, so I took budgeting to a whole new level. So this is budgeting 101. Uh, we, we made it uber budgeting. Uh, so some of you may be familiar with this, uh, with this technique, uh, but we use an envelope system budgeting. So if you're not familiar, this is how it goes. Uh, so you would get a paycheck, and then you would turn that into cash, and then you have multiple envelopes that you have in, you know, in your drawer, and each envelope would represent a need, right? So an envelope would say, you know, uh, shelter or rent, you know, in our case, and then there's an envelope for, you know, food or groceries. There's envelope for, you know, whatever heat and electricity and so on and so on. Uh, so when we get the, the cash, then we would, you know, we would proportion the money and then we put in envelope. The idea is, you know, you kind of have to, you know, be within whatever that you have in envelope. So that's the way we budget. And then whatever that we left over, you know, it kind of goes to somewhere else, you know, goes to, you know, go to the, the offering basket or whatever it may be, if it makes, makes it that far. Uh, so that's, that's, how, that's how we budget, uh, typically. But that's not what Jesus did, right? So Jesus did not give out out of what he could spare. Uh, Jesus didn't give because he had something to spare. In fact, I would argue that Jesus did not give out his riches, but he gave away all of his riches so Paul's point here in verse 9 was that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was rich but became poor. So I love the contrast here, and you might appreciate this as well, uh, kind of the, 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 the contrast between the Macedonian and Jesus. So the Macedonians, they were poor, but they gave like they were rich, right? So they were poor, but they gave like they were rich. Jesus, on the other hand, he was rich, but he lived like he was poor. And later on, we were told that Jesus became poor for your sakes. So this was, in essence... Jesus giving. So Jesus sacrifice. 
One author put it this way, when the chance to give comes, can you imagine Christ closing his heart and giving nothing? Can you imagine Christ closing his heart and giving nothing? Preposterous, impossible. Sacrificial giving flows from the sacrifice of Christ. So if Christians represent Christ, then their giving should reflect Christ's giving. Therefore, a call to believe the gospel and a call to give cannot be separated. If your wallets took the witness stand, if your wallets took the witness stand, would they speak for or against your confession of Christ? So if your wallets took the witness stand, would they speak for your faith or against that? So that's our second point today. When you give, be like Jesus. Give sacrificially. Because biblical giving doesn't begin until it involves sacrifice. So first we give joyfully, second we give sacrificially. Macedonian church, Christ, those are the two models that Paul uses so now that I convince you on these two points, let me move into a couple of application points here. So let's start with verse 11 and 12. Or I would say 11, 12 here. So, so 10 to 12, uh, in these verses, Paul calls to follow through our giving. So the believers in Corinthians had previously expressed a desire and readiness to give. But somehow, for whatever reason, it did not happen. Uh, so Paul did not explain why, uh, but you know, we kind of have gone through the portion of the ladder so we can make some educated guesses here. Uh, so apparently, the churches in Corinthian, they had turned inward, right? So they were consumed by their own internal problems. So in previous chapters, we, we read some of those problems, so there were faction, there were false teachers, there were issues with spiritual gifts, there were issues with unrepentant sins. All this distraction uh, turned their attention from outward ministry, and then everything kind of become inward controversy. So, so we face similar issues, right, in, in our life. So we had a ton of distraction in our life, you know, kids and work whatever it may be. So distractions leads to you know, procrastination. Procrastination leads to hesitation. So if the Spirit leading you to do something, well, then follow His lead and you know, finish His work. And that includes giving, right? So, so give according to what you have. So verse 12 says that, the Lord knows your heart and knows your circumstances. 
So he's not requiring something that you do not have, but he delights, the Lord delights in one who gives all that he can. So we need to follow through. So don't worry if, you know, your give is exactly how you want it to be or how big you want it to be, if that matches your calculation. What is required of us is the spirit of giving and he delights in one who gives in all that he can. So follow through, follow through, give what you can. And then the calls to action is 13 and 14. So for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So you notice the, the two words that are being repeated here. So the idea of fairness in giving. So other translations say equality. So fairness or equality in giving. So the fairness here that Paul talks about has nothing to do with the idea of you know, socialism or communism, right? If you, under, you know, if you heard the idea of, you know, if you're in a communist, uh, you know, everybody needs to be in the same economic level. There's no poor, there's no rich. That's not what Paul is talking about here. So equality in giving, fairness in giving, means that the rich are not expected to bear all the, lo- the load and the poor are not excused from responsibility, so in fact, in the following verse, uh, verse 15, Paul cites an incident, the collection of manna uh, in the wilderness. So you may remember the story, back in the wilderness, back in Moses' time, uh, people, they collected ma- manna from, from the heaven. Some people, they collected manna, they hoarded, it, and then the next day, it became rotten, right? It became useless. Uh, But then other people, they did not collect their full share, but they still have enough to eat. So the point here is that there was equal provision. You know, there there, there is equal provision, neither surplus nor deficiency. So when it comes to giving, God and His sovereignty, God and His sovereignty is the great equalizer. So we fully trust in His provision. So in other words, what I would argue here is that today we may have the privilege of giving, but tomorrow we may have the equal privilege of receiving. If you happen to be on the receiving end, you may consider that as well as an honor and do receive your gifts with a thankful heart. Which is, I know for some people, myself included, is a very, very hard to do. Because we all have this deep down in our sense, a sense of pride. We think that when others helping us, we are weak. But what Paul is arguing here, both giving and receiving generosity are commendable. It's a privilege. 
So again, if you happen to be on the receiving end, receive generosity directed to you gracefully because there's a privilege in doing so. And of course, from the practical manner, we, we, we would never want to deny the opportunity of the other party, the giver, to practice their generosity towards you. So those are our calls to action today. Follow through, give what you can, do not delay, but then also receive generosity gracefully. And finally, look to the cross over and over again. Our giving will never be complete. Our giving will never be complete until or unless we fully understand and take it to heart the true meaning of the cross. So why do we love the cross? Why do Christians love the cross? Because the cross shows clearly the character of God. So at the cross, we see that God is committed to justice, for He is unwilling to compromise on the just punishment of sin. But also at the same time, at the cross, we see that God is committed to love, for He is unwilling to allow sinful humanity to bear the price of the sin. So we need to look up the cross because the cross shows the character of God. We understand God through the cross because He is steadfast in His, in His love and He is merciful. So that's our final application today. Look to the cross over and over again. Our giving will never be complete until we understand the cross. And I will close this morning with a minister named Isaac Watts. So Isaac Watts lived in England in the late 1600s. He was also a prolific hymn writer. So there are today 700 hymns attributed to his name. So if you love Christmas Carol, uh, you may be familiar with the song, Joy to the World. So that was one of his famous compositions. But there is one hymn that captures this notion of majestic, of, of wonderful, of beautiful cross. So I will leave you with his word this morning as we reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus, said, that Jesus gave, that his, that gave to us. So this is his words of Isaac Watts. When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.
So let us pray.